Well, thank you, music team, for leading us this morning. It is exciting to see all of the young life in our church. And uh, speaking of that, uh, Shine Kids is dismissed right now. And so for those of you who are, have kids ages 3 to 5, uh, you are welcome to go to Shine Kids. And if you are new to us and would like to send your child, uh, you are welcome to join them. Um, I invite you to follow them to where the uh, Shine Kids takes place. You know, sometimes hard lessons need to be learned. Uh, I, we've all made them. We've all experienced them. We've all hopefully learned something from the mistakes that we've made. Perhaps you told a lie and it ended up getting you in big trouble. Lesson learned, I hope. Or perhaps you lost your temper and, or you said something harsh to someone and it damaged a relationship with them. You know, there are a lot of reasons why mistakes are made. Now, sometimes mistakes are made because we are not trained properly. Perhaps you're at a job or something. Sometimes mistakes are made because we take a lazy approach to some kind of task that we need to do, like, like brushing your teeth. If you get lazy brushing your teeth, it's a matter of time before cavities find you. If you get uh, poor planning, poor planning is another thing that can lead to mistakes. This last week, I came across a whole bunch of examples of people making mistakes in some kind of renovation or construction project. Now, here are a few interesting ones I found. Uh, check out the installation of this door here. Uh, the determination this guy had to keep his, well, most of his brick floor and that door operational was creative to say the least. This next one I had to look at pretty closely. Uh, the construction of this set of stairs is what you call a classic example of poor planning. Now, you would think that the stair landing, you'd, you'd design that to match the, 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 stair, the, the door, right? Um, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out that way, and they added a few more stairs to go back up. Um, at the very least, they're getting their steps in. This next construction mistake is what I call... Oh, I'll make it work. Now, pardon the stereotype here, but I can just imagine the wife telling her husband, that toilet is not going to fit in that little room. And the husband responding, oh, I'll make it work if it's the last thing I do. And again, the determination, the creativity to make this fit, quite admirable. I got one more. This is another bathroom installation project. And I imagine the person who completed these installs, they stood back to observe the flawless work they had done until, oh no, right? That's not going to work. The, the tap's too far away from the sink. Uh, the toilet is positioned in the wrong way. It can't get the door closed. It's not going to work. There are all kinds of, kinds of reasons why mistakes are made. Now, sometimes mistakes are made because we are disobedient and we don't care about the task. Um, sometimes mistakes are made because we're too proud to ask for help. This morning, we are going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 56. And in this passage, uh, the author of Luke, he kind of, he pulls back the curtain a bit on the disciples, and he gives us a look at some of the issues that they were going through, right? Some of the mistakes and the hard lessons that they needed to learn along the way. So chapter 9, 
Chapter 9 is, is bookended by two mission trips that Jesus sent them out on. Uh, in Luke 9, 1 to 6, we read that Jesus equipped them, empowered his, the 12 disciples before sending them out on their first mission trip without him. Now fast forward to Luke 10, 1 to 24. This is the passage that Josh preached on last week. And we read that Jesus sent 72 others to go on ahead of him to the towns that he was planning to visit. But right here in the middle, in chapter 9, we read that the disciples, they had a lot of growing that they needed to do. They made some noticeable failures and mistakes, and they needed to learn some really hard lessons. But what I find so very encouraging is that despite all the things that the disciples got wrong, Jesus continued to be committed to them. He sent them out on the next mission trip. He was patient with them in their growing. And so all of this it leads me to ask the big question this morning, why does a perfect God choose to work through such imperfect people to accomplish his most important mission? Or to add a bit more clarity to the question, why does a perfect God who is holy, almighty, who needs no help, choose to work through such imperfect, right, sinful, flawed, rebellious people like the disciples, like us, to accomplish this most important mission, right? Spreading the good news, advancing God's kingdom, like a mission with eternity at stake. So in the passage immediately before this one that we will look at this morning, Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they had been up on the mountain where these three disciples, they, they, were, they witnessed this glorious moment where Jesus was transfigured before them. And they saw Jesus shine with, with brilliance that words cannot really fully describe. And they witnessed Jesus miraculously uh, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Uh, they heard the voice of God the Father. This was a big moment. This, if you've ever heard the phrase mountaintop experience, this is where that phrase comes from. And so with that background in mind, let's dive into the passage this morning. I'm going to read from the NIV, we're going to start in verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples... To drive it out. But they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage and in this, this whole section that we'll look at, but I want to zero in on how Luke portrays the disciples. So in this story, what we find, they were inadequate for the task. Right? They couldn't do it, the disciples. Now looking back to 9 verse 1, 
Jesus had given them authority to drive out demons and to heal diseases. But here, they were unable. And so the question that they asked, the question that we ask, why not? The text does not tell us exactly, but the evidence, it points to a lack of faith. And so in Mark's version of this story, Jesus tells the disciples that this kind of evil spirit can be cast out only by prayer. Prayer is the key that unlocks faith in our lives. And these disciples, they faced against this evil spirit seemingly on their own strength, right? trusting in their own abilities, and they lacked the power and authority. And so like I mentioned two weeks ago, spiritual battles require spiritual weapons with spiritual power. And the problem that they encountered was a lack of faith when confronted by challenges. And so the hard lesson that they needed to learn, what was it? Well, when faced with big challenges, they need to have faith in the one who is infinitely bigger than these challenges. In other words, they needed to focus on the greatness of God, appeal to His power, to pray, for prayer is the key that unlocks faith in our lives. That's lesson number one they had to learn. Let's go take a look at the next one here. This is verses 43 to 48. While everyone was marveling at all Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Right? Can you imagine eavesdropping on that one? Well, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Now, it, it would have been amazing to have witnessed all of the, the miracles and the healings that Jesus was doing. Now, earlier in this chapter, in Luke chap, chapter 9, verse 20, uh, Luke, uh, sorry, Peter, he offers this, this really bold confession of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Now, if you put all of the miracles and the healings next to the excitement of all the crowds, next to their understanding of who the Messiah would be. Right, they thought the Messiah was going to be this, this worldly king who would overthrow the Romans. And these disciples, they thought they had punched their ticket to worldly riches and greatness. And so what we see in this lesson here we see a problem of pride and selfish ambition. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how the argument or this posturing started, uh, but he does give us some hints. So remember, just before this whole encounter, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up the mountain to be witnesses to the transfiguration. Now, had this prompted these three guys to assume that they would be like the first in line for the best positions in Jesus' kingdom? Hmm. 
Were, the, uh, were they boasting about it? Were the other nine jealous? That's my guess. The disciples, I mean, at this point, they did not yet grasp what greatness looked like in Jesus' kingdom. For they were so influenced by what the world, what worldly greatness looks like. Like money, power, uh, position. But all this arguing about who was going to be the greatest, it led Jesus to teach them a very important lesson. Pride, selfish ambition, they have no place in God's kingdom. They have no value in God's kingdom. Pride is fed by competition and posturing for power and influence. Humility, on the other hand, is fed by working together and helping others succeed. Pride is fed by our association with the important. Humility, on the other hand, is fed by our association with the lowly. And to illustrate this, Jesus takes this child and has this child stand beside him. And Jesus defined what greatness looks like in his kingdom. It looks like humility and service. It's caring for the least of these. The path to greatness in God's kingdom comes through humble service. Not position, not power, not money. And Jesus will demonstrate this by way of the cross. Let's move on to the next lesson that these disciples needed to learn. Verses 49 to 50. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Hmm. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now the problem we see here is this classic example of, of I mean pride kind of runs through all of them, but jealousy, pride and jealousy, specifically in this case of these fellow workers. And interestingly enough, this is kind of connected to the previous couple lessons these disciples needed to learn. Now think back, right, just a couple verses before, we just talked about it, where the disciples experienced failure in verse 40 when they were unable to drive the demon out of the boy. And now, someone else is successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they're thinking, only we should be able to do that. Right? We're the inner circle. Now, no doubt, I mean, if we're honest, it would have been a bit tough to see someone else experience success where they had recently experienced failure. Seeing the success of someone else had caused them to feel threatened in their position. And the fear, the fear of the jealous person is that they will get replaced or usurped by the other person. Jealousy is destructive. It is ripe with insecurity and fear and selfishness. Jealousy is ugly and it will tempt a person to, to sabotage another and prevent them from having what is best or what is good for them. For example, let me get a, a bit personal and vulnerable here for a second with a ministry-related example. So over the course of the year, uh, we try to be intentional about inviting all kinds of uh, different guest preachers. And we do this to provide different perspectives and to encourage people to grow in their giftedness. And pretty much every time that, we, that someone else preaches here, whether it be Garth or another guest, 
Someone during the week will tell me, man, so-and-so preached an excellent message. And honestly, I mean, honestly, uh, I am delighted to hear this uh, because I love you. I desire, what is, I desire to see you grow. I desire, desire to see what is good for you. Um, I want our services to be meaningful, etc. But sometimes, sometimes the enemy will whisper, well, that preacher is way better than you. Or the enemy will whisper, what they're really saying is that they like them better than you. And I know this is the voice of Satan because it's a message of poison and death. There's nothing redemptive in that message. It just wants to feed that pride and jealousy. And so the, what is the lesson that the disciples needed to learn? Well, first we need to anchor our identity in the love and the acceptance that we have through, through Jesus Christ. That is, that is the first part. That's the where we get that acceptance. And one of the solutions to this prideful jealousy in a practical kind of way is we need to celebrate the success of others. Right? This is what love does. This is the posture of love toward others. Desire what is best for them. Right? Encourage and promote them. Empower them. Uh, disciple them. This is what Jesus did. And Jesus empowered the disciples, interestingly enough, to, to reach far more people for the gospel than he ever did during his time on earth. And that's why Jesus reminds us, reminds them in verse 50, he says, in, in other words, you're on the same team, right? Don't knock them down, help them. Celebrate the success of others. There's one more hard lesson that I want to highlight in this chapter. This is verses 51 to 56. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and the disciples went to another village. Now, okay, what's going on here? Well, first of all, they're in a Samaritan village. And the one thing you need to know about the Jews, they hated the Samaritans. Uh, they had racial prejudice toward them. And the disciples, they probably didn't even like the idea of, of ministering to them. And so when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, James and John, well, they kind of expressed this extra zeal bit more than usual, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Whew, that, that, is, a, that is a bold thing to say. Now James and John, they're, they're thinking back to 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy those who were against him. Now that's a whole different story, whole different context. I don't have time to get into it today. But once again, Jesus needs to correct them. The disciples, they needed to learn another humbling lesson because their problem was is that they were too quick to rush to judgment and they demonstrated a lack of love toward those who they were called to minister to they revealed racial prejudice and so jesus rebuked them for this kind of attitude 
It's not for judgment that Jesus came into the world. Right, listen to Jesus describe why he came. John 3.17, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The world already stood condemned. Jesus came to save. To save the world through him. Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And therefore, what the disciples needed to learn was empathy and compassion. They needed to see their ministry as more than just a task. They needed to care about the people they were going to. They needed to remember that the grace and the compassion that God had has shown them as the motivation for this. And so as we see with these four examples, the disciples, I mean, they made plenty of mistakes. And they, like us, needed to learn a number of hard lessons on this journey of discipleship. And sometimes... The most important lessons that we learn, they come from the mistakes that we make. This is God's redemptive way of, of helping us grow. And as I've reflected on my own mistakes and the mistakes of the disciples and other prominent pastors and Christian leaders, I ask the question again, why does a perfect God choose to work through such imperfect people to accomplish his most important mission? And it's not because the most it's not because the all-powerful God needs us. It's not because we will do it better than he can. It's because God is relational. God prioritizes relationship over efficiency. Now, throughout the story of Scripture, God's thought has always been, now who can I do this with? That's the message on the sign, the church sign this morning if you drive by. Uh, and so in the Old Testament, God chose to work through his people. We, we, we see that. We see it through Adam and Eve and through Noah and through Abraham, through the people of Israel. Now God called the people of Israel out of slavery, and he called them to be a light to the world. Right? God had set them up in the perfect land, the promised land. Do you know what made the promised land so special? I've shared this before, but if you weren't here, I'm going to share it again. It wasn't because it was rich in natural resources, or the largest. What made the land so special is that it was the land through which everyone traveled. Right, take a look at the map behind me. Uh, Israel sits right in the middle of three continents. God set them up to be a light to the world. Now, throughout much of the Old Testament, we learn that Israel was not, they were not very faithful in this mission, but God was faithful to them and continued to work through them. And even after Israel and Judah were, were conquered and exiled into different lands, God continued to work through them and be faithful to them that they might be a light to the nations wherever they were. Now, Scripture is not shy about sharing the mistakes and the sin and the waywardness of God's people. And we see this in like every hero of the Bible. right? In Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah, the disciples, and the list goes on. They all sinned. They all made mistakes. But God chose to work in them and through them to accomplish his good purposes. And God uses people like, like you and like me to make him known and to spread the gospel, the good news and the hope about Jesus. Now a while back, I, I had this interesting question posed by a young adult. And his question was, wouldn't it be 
more effective and efficient if God kind of used an intercom approach to reveal himself to us and to the world to get our attention. He proceeded to share this analogy with me. Suppose there was a building with lots of people in it, and it was on fire and filling with smoke. Okay. Now, the emergency doors are blocked, and therefore they needed to some further instruction on how to get out. What would be the most effective and efficient way to get everyone out of the building safely? Hmm, good question. Well, he figured the most important, the most effective way would be to use an intercom system, right? Broadcast the information that they needed to hear loudly for everyone to hear at the same time. Good idea. All right. So I thought about it. I thought, hmm, okay. My response, the intercom approach is a nice idea, right? God's zapping all the truth uh, into each of our minds. However, I'm not convinced it'd be as effective as you think. And here's the response I gave this young man. I've come to conclude the following about people, about many people, people in general. Many, dare I say it, but don't listen that well. Many do, what many do is ignore what they hear because they think they know better. And so they run around looking for the right way out on their own. And when that way doesn't work, they, well, rather than stopping to listen, they run to the next spot that they see. And why do I think this? Because Scripture shows us. We see it as we observe the world around us. I see it in my own life. People chase after all kinds of pleasures and powers and possessions, looking for, for purpose and fulfillment and hope. And so rather than using an intercom approach, we see the Scriptures show us a better way. God's way. And so let's, using the, exam, the analogy of the building on fire, what God did is he sent someone into the building, someone with clear vision and purpose, someone who knew the way out. And this person got the attention of those who finally realized that, that they don't know the way out, who recognized they needed help, and he led them out. But he didn't stop there. See, after showing them the way out, he filled them with purpose by sending them to partner with him in bringing more people out. Jesus came to save. And when I think about God using the intercom approach to revealing himself to us, I think it could be effective at making many people believers and like big, big, big fans of God. But God desires so much more for us than being people who simply believe in God. God uses broken, hurting, mistake-making people to accomplish his most important mission. And so in doing that, he also does something really amazing in us. He transforms us. He takes us from being fans and he turns us into partners. He takes us from believers and he turns us into disciples. God is in the business of transformation. He's transforming us into, into disciples who are sold out on his mission. Our God is faithful. He is gracious. He loves us. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save us, to redeem us, to empower us to join him in his mission. And he takes our weaknesses and our failures and he finds a way of, of turning them into something redemptive. This is what our God does. And so our weaknesses and failures, they remind us 
of our need to be humble and to depend on God's strength in our lives. Our weaknesses and failures remind us to have empathy and compassion on those to whom God has called us to. Our weaknesses and failures remind us that that God continues to work in us to mold and to shape us to be people that look more and more like Jesus. They remind us that God is not done with us. And I love what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until until the day of Christ Jesus. And so God does not wait until you've learned everything or sorted out all of your problems before he invites you to partner with him. He's inviting you to partner with him today. Our gracious God, he teaches, he corrects, he transforms us as we go, as we serve, as we partner with him. And so this morning we looked at four different failures the disciples experienced. Mistakes they made, sin that was revealed in them, And each of these mistakes took place in this season where Jesus was already sending them out. Jesus was clearly committed to their growth and working through them, even though they still had lots to learn. And in each of these mistakes, important lessons were learned. The wise person learns from the mistakes of others. And so I want to close by reflecting and praying through these four important lessons that we have discovered in this section. And so what I've done is take these four lessons and I've turned them into prayers. And I'll have them up on the screen. And as I read them, I invite you to make them your prayer. When confronted by challenges, Lord, remind me of your greatness and give me eyes of faith that I may trust in you and depend on your great power. When I'm tempted by pride and selfish ambition, Lord, transform my heart and my attitude that I may follow your example of humble service to those in my life. When I begin to feel jealous of the success of others, Lord, help me to celebrate the success of others and to encourage and promote, empower, and be a part of their discipleship growth. When I'm tempted to rush to unfair judgment of others, Lord, create in me a new heart, a heart filled with empathy and compassion. And may I see others the way you do, with love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your grace toward us. We thank you that you choose to work with us and through us, despite and through our weaknesses and failings. And I pray for all of your people here this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the people and the opportunities you've put before us to join you in this most important mission that this world has ever known. Your mission, advancing your kingdom in this world. And I ask, Lord, that you would embolden us and you would fill us with with courage to step out of our comfort zones and into that faith zone. Grant us a deep awareness of who you are and all that you've done for us. And may you be glorified in us and through us. It is for your name, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen.